Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 10, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books and the writer of a new play called God Shows Up, which is now running at the Playroom on West 46th Street through February 21st. You only have 11 days to go see it. If you do not go see it, you may not listen to this podcast anymore. His columns appear at MTI, Master Arts Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, um, Michael, uh, we're going to talk about this at the end of the show, but did you bring your camera to Atlantic City? Well, I brought my phone, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) Very interesting. The best camera is the one that you have with you. That's what they say. Absolutely. The the, um, uh, the cameras on the smartphones have all but decimated the point-and-shoot market. Oh, I'm sure. And mine isn't even a smartphone. It's an Android, but, but it still has a really good camera. Well, Androids are smartphones. Oh, so, oh I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah I thought you were yeah. completely right. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. In fact, some of the Android phones are far surpass the, uh, the iPhone. But uh, uh, Craig, uh, Craig Brockman, uh, uh, one, of our, one of our friends and listeners, um, switched over from iPhone to Android a few years back and uh, takes spectacular photographs with his Android phone. Great. All right. So first up, um, Peter, you got over to MCC, uh, formerly known as Manhattan Class Company, to their brand new Spankin Theater on 10th Avenue to see a play called The Light. Tell us about The Light. Well, uh, what's really astonishing is that uh, this is in their second space, and yet this may be the finest set I ever seen in the second space. They really poured money into this. So Kimi Nishikawa did the set, and it's really quite lovely. It's a beautiful upscale apartment. And at the beginning, we see uh, a gentleman come in. He's Rashad, and um, you can tell that he's really preparing for a special occasion. Uh, because he sprays uh, some uh, cologne and walks into it, you know, that type of thing, just to get a a hint of a cologne. So you think, all right, this guy uh, has a visitor coming over who's um, a first date and he really wants to impress her or him, you know, it could very well be. And and you're amused that he's um, taking out the bottle of wine and all that kind of stuff, you know. So And then the door opens. Um, You hear the key in the lock and the door opens and in comes um, a woman. So wait a minute. This isn't a first date, apparently. This is actually a couple. And uh, the woman, whose name is Genesis, uh, comes in and she starts talking about work and how difficult it is to be a principal of a school and all that kind of business. And you find out that they've been together for quite some time. And it's lovely to think that after being together for some time that this man still makes an effort to – spruce up and uh, really uh, make an impression that he's uh, wants to make an impression on is what I should say. Anyway, so as it turns out, uh, they've been dating for two years. And um, of course, um, as is the case with so many women, um, she's uh, expecting a ring uh, somewhere along the line. And she's hoping that you know, a second anniversary is a nice time to get a ring. And um, they have a little squabble about that. But he does wind up surprising her in many ways, though not nearly 
surprising her as many ways as she will surprise him because she has, well, quite a story to tell. And for a while, you really start wondering, my, she's being so finicky about the fact that he wants to take her out to a concert. And while she was enthusiastic about going, she was she becomes adamant about not going because another singer will be on the bill and is somebody she doesn't like. And I don't mean she doesn't like the music. In fact, we even get the impression she likes the music, but she doesn't like the person. And <clears throat> we get the impression this has happened because uh, she's read bad reports in the news about him. No, it goes far deeper than that. All right. So the play gets off, I will admit, to a slow start. And you're wondering where it's going. There are some wonderful, wonderful things in it um, in terms of um, little details. There's something involving a letter, which I dare say you will not be able to figure out when the letter comes out. And once the letter is open, you will see exactly what's going on. And then you are really even more impressed with this guy. This is really a nice guy. And for a while, you really think that um, she might be quite the bitch and he's the nice guy. No, not at all. The story is much more complicated than that. And it really picks up steam and becomes really a train running out of control by the time it ends. Uh, so Loy A. Webb is the writer and Logan Vaughn is the director, both doing wonderful work because just at the point where you really think you're just hearing exposition and you, you might be a little bored, kaboom, in comes more pieces of information, and each one is more surprising than the one you just heard. So this is a very worthy effort, and whoa, these two performers, McKinley Belcher III uh, plays Rashad, and Mandy Mazden plays Genesis, and they are sensational. And, you know, um, uh, another critic mentioned something to me um, that – may really be valid and that is the fact that after the show was over once the lights go down when the lights came up these two performers were hugging each other very tightly and this critic got the impression that it wasn't a case that they were still in character that they were just really very happy that it went so well and that the play had landed with the audience because the audience was really on the edge of their seats and so I, I think there may be something to that. I think they really might have been so happy that it went over so well, and it really, really did. So it's really worth getting up to 10th Avenue and 53rd Street to uh, to see this show. More to the point, um, if this is what they're putting money into for the second space show, whoa, what's going to happen with Alice by Heart? I mean, uh, yeah, well, well, of course, it could very well be there's no set at all, you know, they, <laughs> that they blew it all on this one, or the fact that Alice by Heart doesn't require a set. That's the new uh, musical by the, the writers of Spring Awakening. So we shall see what we shall see. But in the meantime, you should see the light because uh, it is powerful. I have no idea why uh, Lloyd Webb decided to call the play The Light. Um, there's not much light imagery in it. And um, it does sound like a, a reasonably dull title. Uh, it sounds generic. Uh, it, but you can't judge a book by its cover and you can't judge a play by its title. Um, the light certainly shines. Do you think it's maybe uh, as in beginning to see the light? I'm, yeah, I'm just well, trying yeah. to, good to for think. You. Yeah. That was the first thing that popped into my head. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I'm not. Um, that sounds valid to me. And um, that could very well be what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, aside from that, you know, don't let a dull title keep you away from this play. Maybe they spent so much money on the set that they ran out of money for the marquee. 
<laughs> it's funny. I remember vividly <clears throat> that um, <laughs> an actress uh, in a, um, a musical theater pro uh, production of Pinocchio, a children's production um, out in Long Island, um, the woman playing um, a, a, a significant part, I don't remember what it was, but playing a significant part was actually an equity actress. And she was really in a non-equity production, so she had to change her name. And she changed her name to Judy Tepper. The reason being that that's how many letters they had that would spell out a name um, to put on the bulletin board. <laughs> that's funny. As, as she said to me, once I was a schlepper, now I'm Judy Tepper. You know, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that is The Light at the uh, MCC Theater on uh, West 52nd Street. It's playing through March 17th, so get over there and check it out. Um, Michael, you got over to City Center uh, to see the Encore's production of Call Me Madam. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, Call Me Madam, uh, not one of my favorite shows, uh, and I guess this production didn't change my opinion of it. It's uh, uh, Music and Lyrics by Irving Berlin, book by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. Uh, famously originally presented as a vehicle for Ethel Merman, uh, playing Sally Adams, who uh, is uh, an, an ambassador. And she uh, is kind of in over her head. It's actually based uh, loosely on the historical character, Pearl Mesta. And that's uh, – therein lies the beginning of part of the problem with this show uh, is that it uh, it's very, very dated in – a bad way. Uh, there are a lot of references uh, that many modern audiences would not necessarily get. Uh, there's a whole comic subplot uh, running joke about the fact that uh, um, Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, had a daughter named Margaret uh, whom I actually knew. Uh, Did you really? Slightly, wow. yes, yes. Well, I met oh. her. I met her several times, I should say. Wow. Yes, I did. And she uh, was trying to be um, a uh, performer. I think she tried both singing and piano playing. And uh, she was not very successful. And it was kind of an embarrassing situation because here was the daughter of the president uh, trying to, you know, and so like when reviewers would come, it's like, well, what do we do? You know, <laughs> do we give a pass or, or do we, you know, do we criticize or what? So anyway, that was that was a something that anyone in the country would have known about at the time. But now I don't think anyone you know, I mean, I think very few people would know what what the reference is when Sally is on the phone with Harry Truman and asking about Margaret and the reviews in Denver and things like that. So so that's one huge problem with the, the show to begin with. And Michael, by the, let me ask you, did yes. the audience seem to get the joke? Not that one. No, no. There were mm -hmm. crick there were crickets uh -huh. um, okay. in, in response to the Harry and Margaret jokes. Mm -hmm. yeah. OK. Um, and then a few others also got crickets. I, I, I think maybe some were cut. Some of the maybe some of the more topical things were cut. I'm not sure. Um, and speaking of Lindsay and Krauss, you know, I, I was thinking of them. It's it's interesting that they're they were really huge in the theater for decades. But a lot of the things that they wrote, I think, are not really not done much anymore because they're for one reason or another, they're so dated. And uh, so their, their their lasting legacy is not not huge. I think one of their 
most lasting shows was uh, one of their earlier ones was Anything Goes, uh, which they wrote the book for. But that show, uh, really, it started to be revised from day one and even actually before day one, uh, they, 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 you know, pre-opening. Uh, and they also uh, – so I'm not sure how much of what survives and Anything Goes is written by Lindsay and Krauss, but um, – but I think that that's something that will actually carry their names forward forever because everyone keeps doing anything goes. And, and I think for good reason, because it's so delightful. Uh, but then they wrote Life with Father, which was the tremendous, tremendous hit of its day and is still the longest running play in Broadway history. But now it's almost never done for several reasons, including uh, casting difficulties and the um, – the I think that the humor in it is very gentle and and sort of of an earlier style that is not so much um, uh, maybe appreciated today or at least producers don't think that audiences appreciate it. Um, so that's uh, that's a show that they did that was huge and is never done anymore. Uh, they wrote the book for the. Ethel Merman vehicle, Happy Hunting, uh, which again is about the wedding of of Grace Kelly. Uh, so and and talk about dated. Uh, that was you know something that was in the news constantly at the time uh, in the mid fifties, but now it's I don't think it's anything that that uh, is people look back on as a huge historical event. Um, and then they wrote, of course, they wrote The Sound of Music, and that is the other big, major, huge legacy that they have. But there again, even in that case, uh, the film version of The Sound of Music, which is really the thing that, that most of the world knows, uh, wh although it does retain much of – what they wrote, uh, there's also a lot of changes because Ernest Lehman wrote this screenplay. And so that is not really uh, – certainly not anywhere near 100 percent uh, Lindsay and Krauss. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, uh, there were some other things, but they um, they wrote Mr. President, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mr. President, which is a Irving, another Irving Berlin musical, which uh, did not really go over very well because it's really not very good. Uh, so all of that. But uh, but I bring this up because I just in yesterday in the mail got a a mailing uh, that the Metropolitan Playhouse is about to produce a Pulitzer Prize winning play by Lindsay and Krauss called State of the Union. And that is uh February 8th through March 10th. So that's something you you uh, might want to check out because there again, um, not not the kind of thing you see every day. Um, so excuse that that huge uh, tangent, but I, I just wanted to mention that I think it's interesting that we seem to be having a little tiny bit of a Lindsay and Kraus, Kraus <laughs> renaissance here. Uh, back to Call Me Madam, this production at Encores, um, I would say was solid, but unexciting uh they the encores had done the show years ago with tyne daly in the lead and that was a really pretty fantastic production uh this time they had carmen cusack who has been a guest on our podcast and who was so phenomenal in the short-lived broadway musical bright star um and i think she was just 
very very well cast in this in terms of type and voice and acting and appearance i thought she was sexy and she uh which is it's good for sally adams to have uh, a sexiness to her because that helps with the with the plot i think uh and that's something that maybe Merman didn't necessarily have in the same way. But um, I don't know. It, it's it's really hard to define. There is a certain star quality that was missing. I, I think that several people have remarked on in in Carmen's performance here. I, I just think it was because it's because the book is so thin, uh, so, so thin for Call Me Madam. I think you really need someone who is just a, an outsized personality. And it's got nothing to do with talent or acting ability. It's just that 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 unique star quality thing that some people have and some don't. So that was uh, that was a b- bit of a disappointment. The rest of the cast was strong. Jason Gautier as Kenneth Gibson uh, sang very, very beautifully and, and also had a charming presence. And then we had uh, Ben Davis as Cosmo Constantine and uh, Lauren Warsham as uh, the Princess Maria. Uh, and, and then uh, lots of other fun people in smaller roles. Christopher Gurr, Adam Heller, Brad Oscar, Stanley Wayne Mathis, Michael Benjamin Washington, Randy Rainbow <laughs> uh, in the role of Sebastian Sebastian, uh, Daryl Hammond and Carol Kane. Uh, and of course, um, I, I will say that the Encores Orchestra under Rob Berman sounded better, better than ever. Um, so I don't think this was the best choice for Encores. It cer- they certainly didn't need to do it again. Uh, Jack Viertel came out beforehand and gave a speech that was somewhat slightly embarrassing to me because it seemed like he was justifying doing the show again and uh, and that he felt he needed to. And it was uh, maybe a little uncomfortable because uh, I didn't necessarily buy his reasoning. But whatever, uh, you know, these are the people who call the shots and they decided to do it. And it was certainly not a washout. It was very entertaining. Uh, Dennis Jones did some really excellent choreography. Uh, so that was Call Me Madam. We've uh, uh, who knows when we'll see it again. Uh, but <laughs> here it was in a major high-profile production by City Center Encores. I didn't have much interest in going. Now, to be fair, I've been going to my own play um, to, to see the progress of that. But really, uh, I've, I've done my time with Call Me Madam, and I really do feel <laughs> it's terribly dated from the outset in which she's uh, she's going to be ambassador to uh, Lichtenberg, and she's taking the oath of office, and no sooner is she done this, she says to somebody, where the hell is Lichtenberg? And I think it's really insulting. I would think that many women would really be very insulting to think that somebody who has this position doesn't even know where the country is, that she hasn't done any research. So I really do feel that this is a, a show of its time. Um, the real irony, of course, is that Irving Berlin won the Tony for Best Score the same year that Guys and Dolls was eligible. And I don't think anybody today would really feel the Call Me Madam score, though it's solid and I like it. Um, is better than Guys and Dolls. I can't imagine that being the place uh, situation. Yeah. But I have to also say that um, I, I've seen it a lot. I've seen it in a high school production. I've seen it at Good Speed, where Kim Criswell was very good in it. Um, did I mention I've seen it in Luxembourg? Did I mention no. that? <laughs> no. Well, um, that's a technicality. You see that Irving Berlin... Irving Berlin sold his uh, townhouse uh, way on the east side, somewhere around Beekman Place, to uh, Luxembourg. It's now their embassy. Ah. And the way it works is, um, this is technically the case, that if you go to an embassy, you are in that country. 
Right. Well, anyway, they did a presentation of Call Me Madam there. So I've seen Call Me Madam in Luxembourg. What can I tell you? And um, so I didn't make any effort to see this under the circumstances. And, uh, you know, you can't see them all. And we all do the best we can. But uh, I have to say what Michael has been saying is what I've been hearing from everybody else. The townhouse in, in uh, on the east side of Manhattan might be as large as the actual Luxembourg itself. <laughs> <laughs> Too big to be a city, <laughs> too small to be a Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So uh, Peter and M- Michael uh, both got a chance to see To Kill a Mockingbird. Peter, it's your second, uh, second round at To Kill a Mockingbird, this particular production, this Sorkin production. So um, Michael, why don't you start us off because Peter has given us his review already on Mockingbird, but um, tell us what you thought. Oh, I – uh was very <laughs> somewhat disappointed oh. uh-huh. um and it's it i have very very complicated feelings about it so i'll i'll try to be brief uh let me say first of all i am not uh tremendously well versed in the source material i sir, i've never read the book and I have seen the film, but not for many, many years and only once. I loved it, but I only I have only seen it once, just for whatever reason. And uh, so I'm not one of those people who have it imprinted on my mind and in my heart, as apparently so many uh, people do. Uh, certainly, that's the marketing of this production that that. Uh, that this is a uh, you know one of the texts that all of America shares. Uh, I I uh, for whatever reason it wasn't on any of my reading lists in school, <laughs> um, or I don't know maybe it was a it was one of the choices and I didn't pick it. I I, I wonder I'll have to go back and look. Uh, not sure if it's still uh, you know taught in the schools. Does anyone know? Oh yeah, I believe so. Um, yes, I, I I think it's on plenty of curricula. Okay, so that would you know, probably explain uh, why it is it is back on Broadway and why Aaron Sorkin felt he needed to adapt it and Scott Rudin felt he needed to produce it. Um, uh, let me say at the outset, uh, to echo what Peter said some weeks ago, I cannot imagine the point in calling this Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird uh, because she did she wrote the original book, but uh, this is quite an extensive adaptation uh, by Aaron Sorkin, and even I, who don't know the piece all that well, uh, have a you know fairly good idea of how much he changed. Um, that uh, this is I, I actually find really quite annoying when something like that is done really just for rights purposes and not as a reflection of what the reality is. Uh, Of course, another huge uh, unfortunate example of that that springs to mind is the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, uh, which Stephen Sondheim made such an eloquent point about uh, several years ago when that revisal of that piece was done. Um, so because that was not – well, I mean the Gershwins uh, – I won't get into that but because that's uh-huh. what we're talking about here. But but here, uh, this is not Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, she wrote the original book, which is considered a classic and, and, and uh, is beloved by millions uh, and 
and she, uh, this, this, yes, it's very true that this play would not exist without her, but this uh, is not her text. A lot of it, a lot of it is not. And I don't, I can't imagine what the point is in calling it that. It should be it just called, I guess, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, or if anything, Aaron Sorkin's To Kill a Mockingbird, although I understand why that didn't happen. Um, I, uh, it's hard to say it, how I would have reacted to this if I went into it completely cold and had never, ever seen the movie even once, uh, because – how do you compare something – I mean do you compare something to another version? Uh, is it fair to do so or is it not fair if, if there are things about the previous version that you think were better or worse? Uh, the film of To Kill a Mockingbird famously uh, has actual children playing three major roles – that are meant to be children. Uh, this production has three adults playing those roles. And those adults are Celia Keenan-Bolger, um, Will Pullen, and uh, Gideon Glick uh, in the roles of Scout, Jem, and uh, uh, and Dill. I'm, excuse me. Uh, so – I don't know. It. Uh, I, I think that I think uh, that a major, major, major part of this piece is that these three very young, impressionable children are caught up in this, this very, very fraught situation of this trial of a black man uh, who really, really seems to be innocent, and he's just being railroaded because it's the deep south. Um, in in the 1930s uh so i you know for whatever logistical or other reasons to have adults playing the roles uh, i i think i do think that it was a mistake and i think that it would have been more effective if they had been able to find three younger you know much younger people to play the roles and now they're they wouldn't necessarily have to have been as young as i think they're supposed to be in the book which is really quite young but if they had gotten you know three teenagers uh young teenagers middle middle teenagers to play these roles i, I really think that would have been great and and i hasten to say this is to take nothing away from those three actors I just mentioned because they're all fantastic, especially Celia Keenan-Bolger, who was so fantastic that I wouldn't be surprised if she wins a Tony Award. So it's got nothing to do with their contribution. I think it's just the idea of having them as adults to begin with, which was a, a really unfortunate idea by Aaron Sorkin. Um, what else? I, I made some uh, some random notes about the production. I think the set design uh, was not great. I don't understand. It looks like it's the whole thing takes place in. Uh, I mean, there's an overarching unit set that looks like I don't know. It looks like an abandoned warehouse or maybe even abandoned greenhouse or something like that. And I wasn't sure what that was supposed to be. Uh, there are other set elements, but that's the that's the framework of it. Um, another uh, aspect of this adaptation that many people have commented on is that the role of uh, Atticus Fitch's maid, Calpurnia, um, that has been very, very extensively reconceived so that she speaks up to Atticus 
on several occasions in no uncertain terms and is very, very honest with him about uh, various things and, and even I would say berates him and calls him out on several things that he says and opinions that he holds. Uh, she is played by Latanya Richardson Jackson in this production and uh, Atticus, of course, is played by Jeff Daniels. Uh, so I know that, you know, when I've read all of the, the pre-opening uh, actually uh, articles and interviews with the creative team and, and the justification of Aaron Sorkin and Bartlett chair for, for the changes that were made. And they felt that they didn't want to present a story like this without giving the black characters more of a voice. So I understand all of that from a social standpoint, but I just don't think it worked in terms of the drama of the show and the character. Um, uh, related to that, uh, for some reason, uh, Aaron Sorkin felt it necessary in this adaptation to have Atticus play devil's advocate at some point. But this takes the rather ridiculous form of uh, – during several points in the show, um, there are these racist characters who – say and do horrible, horrible, horrible things, followed by Atticus saying to his children or his maid, oh, well, you know, we have to respect their opinion and, you know, they're basically good people. And the audience is like, what? <laughs> and, you know, I think that Aaron Sorkin did this just so he could provide uh, a, a, a place for Calpurnia and the kids to talk back to their dad and say, no, 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 that's wrong. So I, I think he, I think it was an attempt to, uh, to present both sides, quote unquote, to the extent that that's possible. But given the things that these racist characters say and do, it's just, uh, uh, it's a little ridiculous. That was my reaction to it anyway. Um, so I think that was a mistake. And I think the, uh, kids as adults was a mistake. And, uh, some of the staging is, very weird. Uh, the the kids are like I'm not sure if they're actually supposed to be present at the trial or not because w the way they're staged here is they're kind of like standing around uh, in the courtroom. So I guess they're not supposed to be there, but I don't know. Then at one point we're told they are supposed to be there. That was confusing to me. And um, the uh, also having the. Uh, the character, some of the characters, mostly Scout, uh, narrate much of the action. Uh, I'm not sure that 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 was the best idea either. So I um, have, as I say, very mixed feelings about this. I, it would have been interesting to see uh, what it would have been like if Aaron Sorkin had taken another approach. And several people have told me uh, that they have seen the pre-existing. Ah. Stage adaptation of To Kill a Oh, Mockbird. I thought you meant his original script. Okay, oh, go on. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Well, maybe. Because he, he, he's he gone public about saying, I wrote a script and then I gave it to Scott Rudin and we both didn't like it. So I thought that's what you meant. Anyway, no. go on. I Go on. <laughs> no, that's okay. No, I don't know that. No, I'm talking about the previous uh, stage adaptation that has been done um, in various places, I guess, for decades. And one person told me that it, that version is vastly superior to this one. So I cannot speak to it because I haven't seen it, but that is what someone said. Um, and that's, those are my thoughts on To Kill a Mockingbird. So if we can, if we can get into Jeff Bezos's text messages, certainly we can get into Aaron Sorkin's email and get a copy <laughs> of that script. 
Uh, I'd like to talk about this because this is one of my favorite experiences um, of the season of the decade, um, the century, though, of course, as ragtime might uh, point out, you know, there's still plenty of years to go. Um, <clears throat> first off, um, I do feel that there's no problem with having the kids play adults, because, which they are, because it's a memory play. They're looking back on what happened. So that this is now they're saying, wow, what I thought happened back when I was a child maybe didn't happen. Let's look at that again. So I have no problem with the fact that they're older characters now. And um, I think that was a good way in. In terms of Calpurnia talking to um, Atticus that she would dare to do that, I really believe that she would because she's really his honorary wife. She's been with the family a long time. It wasn't like she came in even when um, the wife died. She was there beforehand. She was their maid, and now she has become the de facto wife. And also – Atticus has established himself as somebody who really believes that each person is equal. So as a result, she doesn't have to fear the fact that she is going to be put down because she's simply black, as many people in the town put her down because she's simply black. One of the points of the whole play is that if you are black, you can't catch a break in the South in 1934. It just cannot be. Um, Everybody knows that Tom Robinson didn't do it. Everybody knows that Bob Ewell did. But you can't let a black man go free. What a precedent that will set. So so, um, so I do believe that Calpurnia is fine um, doing that because he's shown to be fair. Uh, she knows the man, so she's okay with that. Um, I also feel that um, the thing you were talking about, are they at the trial or are they not at the trial? Yes, they're definitely at the trial. Uh, the point is they're wandering around because, again, it's a memory play. They don't have to be seated anywhere. They're just thinking about the trial. So that's the reason that they're here, they're in everywhere. But there's no question they're at the trial, especially because they have plenty of dialogue about what they saw, what they did, how they felt, uh, what the result was. So there's a lot of that going on, too. Uh, in terms of his saying, Atticus saying to them, Uh, these are good people. And he doesn't quite say that. Um, That's what Donald Trump said about the people um, in Charlottesville. No, that's a different thing. But the thing is that um, what he's trying to do is indicate that it's better to be nice uh, to people because that's the way you win them over. It's a variation on the flies with honey vinegar thing. So so I think that's um, significant. As terms of the original Christopher Sergil script, which I have seen many times, many, many times, what that is is simply the book. It's simply the book on stage. Uh, So we have that. We have that. Anybody wants to see that can believe me, that show gets done all the time. It's always on the list of the top 10 shows being done in high schools, um, mostly high schools, frankly. Uh, It's done a lot there. But um, here, there and everywhere, too. I've seen professional productions of it um, and quite good ones. And it's a very solid script. It is the Harper. That's the one that should be called Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, Mm. because it really is her her story. And uh, with much of the dialogue just picked out. And just as I didn't much like Network on Broadway, because Network was in indeed the movie on stage to have a completely different slant on what was going on here to think about what would happen to these kids once they got older and what they thought about what they saw way back when re-examining it and um, losing their innocence about it not taking things at face value anymore I find that a very very good take and um, not that you had to do this Michael I'm not saying you did but truly um, I, I did read the book 
the entire book. I did watch the entire movie, and that made my appreciation better. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that everybody who goes to the show is going to remotely do that. I am sure that 90% of the people um, who go in don't have that experience, and I bet I'm low. I re- I'm, I'm sure it's much higher. It's probably 99 and 44, 100% of the people don't read the book uh, or, or the movie, though they – they probably think they have a, a good grasp of what the book and movie was from when they saw it. But holy God, if you really do that book and you see that movie, um, I, I, the achievement that Aaron Sorkin has done is really spectacular. And um, so that's one of the reasons. I might have not been so impressed had I not done that. And again, nobody has to do this. You pay the money to see the play and that's all there is to it. That's fine. That's fine. But um, I think appreciation really does grow um, after uh, having done those two things. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 those are all valid points. I guess I just disagree with some of them. For example, yeah, <laughs> yeah for example, uh, this probably didn't bother you at all, but uh, it, it's a memory play, fine. But they're dressed like kids, and so they keep going into and out of it. And I wasn't sure. Also, when they're narrating. Uh, I wasn't sure how long after it was supposed to be, and so that all was a little confusing to me. And the thing with Calpurnia, I I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I guess the point is made in the show in this version that uh, I think they say that it's almost a brother-sister relationship between Atticus and Calpurnia. That's how – you said wife, uh, but yeah. I think – but in the in the show, they say that they, they've been together for so long that it's almost like a brother and sister, so they are able to say anything to each other. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not so much I had a problem with what she said. It's what I had, I had a problem with, with what he said, and I'm pretty sure he did say at one point these are good people. Base, these are basically good people or something very much like that. Right after one of the characters said something so horrific uh, that to the kids that the entire audience gasped. I mean, they're not. They're, these are horrible, horrible people. And yes, Atticus tries to you know, say uh, that Bob lost his job and that's why he's bitter. And, you know, you have to understand that. And the woman, that old woman character who's the racist, well, I think he maybe gives maybe gives some reasons why she's supposedly such a hateful old witch. Uh, but I, uh, it seemed just too devil's advocate for me. And I, 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 I you know, and again, again, that's my personal reaction. Oh, of to course. It. Yeah. On the other hand, and um, the point is sometimes people tell their children to do things that they don't do. Yes. You know, do as I say, <laughs> do as I do. And don't yes. forget, late in the play, he grabs Bob Ewell and says, you are inferior to me and I am superior to you. It's better put than that. But the words inferior and superior are definitely mentioned. Mm-hmm. So he ha- definitely has – he comes out with his true feelings there. So, true, true. So you know, that, that has to be uh, reconciled too. But – Sometimes you do tell your children uh, to do things that um, you wouldn't necessarily do because you feel it's the better course of action. So I think that's what was going on there, too. Whatever the case, uh, this discussion certainly points out the fact this is a very complex work and uh, certainly is open to a lot of interpretations and a lot of uh, deep feelings. And I have tremendous deep feelings from it, for it. And in a, you know, we have a lot of plays, but so many plays um, have small casts. For example, like uh, American Son um, had a small cast and we'll, we'll 
we'll see other small cast plays before the season ends. I'm going to be very interested to see how many Tony nominations this show gets. And again, for all I know, it'll get none. But, you know, I'm even thinking um, that uh, so many of the supporting characters I I thought were just terrific and really made a tremendous, tremendous impression. Um, Certainly, uh, it was something to see um, Frederick – Excuse me. Um, 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 I lost my uh, Weller. voice. Yeah, I, I, it's not the name. It was just I, I choked oh. for a second. Um, uh, playing such an evil character, we usually don't see him in, in that uh, situation. So uh, he he really was tremendously effective there. But this actress new to me, Erin Wilhelmy, playing Mayella, I won't be surprised if she gets a nomination mm-hmm. too because uh, she's really something in playing – uh, a woman who knows that she's um, not, she knows she's lying and she knows that uh, Atticus is smart and that he might be able to trip her out. So she tries to be defiant at the very outset, uh, hoping that that will um, counteract that. And uh, so she's very, very effective. And you really think she's going to break down at any second. And she, she does keep her resolve because she is petrified of her father, petrified mm-hmm. as well. She should be, you know what I mean? So, so yeah, I, I, in addition to the people who you expect would get Tony nominations, meaning Jeff Daniels and Celia Keenan Bolger. Um, I don't think it's possible that Tanya Richardson Jackson is going to get a nomination as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I even, uh, not, uh, all right. I won't say these are nominations, but I do believe that Danny McCarthy is the sheriff and Dakin Matthews is the judge, a terrific. So anyway, and Stark Sands is wonderful as the semi-smarmy lawyer uh, for the uh, prosecution. Um, he's never lost a case, and so that gives him a lot of um, courage and um, authority. So, so really, I, I, I'm, I was very grateful to have the chance to go back again, and uh, frankly, I hope I haven't seen it for the last time. Uh, I think it really is a tremendous achievement, and but I fully understand – why you wouldn't see that from uh, not having read the book or the movie? Well, I I, I just have mixed feelings about yeah, it. Yeah, fine. Is the, is the, and uh, one final thing. I was a little surprised that um, Sorkin wasn't able to or didn't expand the role of Tom Robinson more as played by Benga uh, Akinagbe. But I suppose that that would have been really difficult to do because of the way the – the whole thing is conceived. Um, I mean, uh, I, I didn't feel like there was a lot of added material there. Did you? Yeah. Uh, the scene where Atticus goes to his jail cell and talks to him for the first time is certainly new. That's not in either the book or the movie. And uh, that's a very effective scene. But the biggest thing is the fact that in the book and the movie, the the line he says that sinks him. Oh, yes. Is, um, is now done defiantly. Because he is standing up and he is becoming a man. He doesn't care that um, he may suffer for this at this point in time. He has to stand up for his dignity. And that does not happen in uh, the movie or the book. It's it's more he's simply telling the truth, but he doesn't say it defiantly. So, mm-hmm. again, a lot of different ways of looking at this. And um, I'm very glad that I've looked at it twice. Okay. Speaking of looking at things more than once. Uh- Michael, I am so jealous because you got to get to Lincoln Center Theater to see My Fair Lady with Laura Benanti and Danny Burstein and a whole host of other people. Tell us about My Fair Lady for the second time for you. Yeah, I went just last night and I it, it was just a transcendent experience. I 
guess I, I again to use the phrase I had mixed feelings about about the production when it opened. I liked a lot of it and really had many questions about some of the casting and directions uh, direction. Uh, but now. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's the same direction uh, overall, but by Bartlett Share. But I'm not. I don't. I wonder how much uh, he was directly involved in directing the replacements. Uh, I actually um, went backstage afterwards to see Danny Burstein, who plays Doolittle, because uh, I've known him since he was 15, as I think I may have mentioned. Uh, and uh, he actually indicated that uh, that Share did have a. a, a an addict of involvement in directing the the replacements. So I, I can assume uh, that that is the case. I mean, he didn't actually say that, but but he, he indicated that that was the case. Um, so uh, I I just felt when I saw it originally that uh, it was that the production was too heavy handed. That was the main problem with it. Uh, the, there was a lot of humor, a lot of humor that was missed, uh, at least on the night I saw it. I mean, who knows? These things can change drastically from night to night, as we all have seen. Uh, but I remember the night I saw the show uh, initially with Lauren Ambrose and Norbert Leo Butts and, and uh, the rest of the original cast. Um, I seem to remember that there were like no laughs until the scene uh, at Ascot where Eliza is trying to uh, talk <laughs> with uh, with the other people at, at Ascot and trying to come across as a refined lady. And that uh, I remember Lauren Ambrose really nailed that scene and, and it was hilarious. But I but overall, I remember um, as I remember the production when I saw it several months ago with the original cast, it just seemed like it was too heavy handed and, and fairly humorless. Well, that is no longer the case. Laura Benanti, uh, as Eliza is just a, an incredible breath of fresh air, especially in that particular way. I mean, it's interesting. You would think that, uh, since we're talking about Laura Benanti, you would think that her singing would be the first thing I would mention. And she sang it very beautifully. But I would say that her acting and specifically her comic acting was so phenomenal in this that it it just changed the entire the entire production and, and elevated the whole thing. And it seemed to make uh, uh, Harry Haddon Payton's performance far superior than it was earlier. Uh, it, it just the whole pace of it and, and the whole feel of the entire show was was elevated by her brilliant musical comedy acting, uh, which is not to slight her dramatic acting when that was called for, uh, especially in act two in the conversation scene with Higgins, which was the best acted version of it that I've ever seen. Um, Danny Burstein, uh, who I mentioned, I, I'm, I'm not exactly um, unbiased because I've known him since he's 15, but he was sheer brilliance as Doolittle. And there again, uh, got more laughs than Norbert Leo Butts did the night I went. Uh, and Rosemary Harris uh, as Mrs. Higgins, who I saw on that same stage, uh, the Vivian Beaumont, in one of the first plays I ever saw in my life, uh, 1973 or four, A Streetcar Named Desire at the Vivian Beaumont in the role of Blanche Dubois. And here she was again as Mrs. Higgins, just 
just adored by the audience and uh, literally stopping the show with with one laugh line that she had. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was a, a transcendent. Nice. moment and yeah it was really it was really very special and actually uh, i was laughing and almost tearing up at the same time because of what i was seeing in the history of my own theater going and and the history of rosemary harris is one of our great great artists um everything else alan corduner as pickering seemed better and funnier and christian dante white as freddie einsford hill he Got an ovation at the end of On the Street Where You Live. And again, he sang it more beautifully than anyone I've ever heard. But that's not – I think that's not why the audience went so crazy. He made this character so lovable and charming uh, in a a slightly uh, um, ditzy way uh, that Freddie is supposed to be and, and like maybe not that smart, but he, he was so much in love with Eliza and you could see, you could see how much he loved her. And, and that love was just radiating from him. And it, it was, it was this magical thing that kind of enveloped the audience. And so, uh, you know, that song, from day one, again, as some people have criticized it uh, because they say, well, why does this minor character come in and sing, uh, the, you know, this the big song? And in fact, we uh, we have read and, and, and heard uh, that there was a problem in the beginning uh, of the show when the show first opened because Freddie would come out after the Ascot scene and sing On the Street Where You Live. And the audience didn't quite realize who he was. Uh, so they had it to add a little verse to remind them uh, because where basically Freddie repeats what happened at Ascot and how much he loved uh, watching Eliza and hearing her talk. Um, so that and that solved everything because then the audience knew that you know who he was and and et cetera. Um, so here it it just uh, I mean it, he his his acting of the song and his. So obvious adoration and love of Eliza when we've seen her being treated badly, you know, all night long. <laughs> um, it, it just had the effect that that song is supposed to have and doesn't always have. So I cannot say enough about him uh, in that role. Uh, and if there's any way um, that y- y'all can get back to see this uh, before Laura Benanti leaves. I'm not even sure. I-, I think her closing date has been announced. I don't have it in front of me, but it's not far away. And I don't yeah. think mm-hmm. it's been announced if, well, who her replacement will be or if the show will continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I think that uh, the second part, uh, I think we're supposed to believe it's going to be continuing because uh, other people – signed contracts for longer but of course that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't close but um i I mean it was full it was certainly full last night so i think that laura and the and uh these other people have given it a new lease on life and i'm so glad i'm so so glad that laura got a chance to do this because uh famously she wanted it from the beginning and for whatever reason she wasn't cast uh uh, lauren ambrose got it instead but she called it a bucket list role and a role of a dream role and a role of a lifetime. And, uh, and I, I, she and, and the audience uh, are, are very, very lucky that she did get to do it. 
Okay. So next up, uh, Peter got over to Irish Rep to see The Shadow of a Gunman. So tell us about this play. Well, uh, it's really nice that the um, Irish Rep is uh, doing a big series dedicated to Sean O'Casey because when you think Irish plays, you certainly think Sean O'Casey. And they are doing uh, dozens of readings of his shows, which are free, by the way. You just have to call 212-727-2737. Once again, 212-727-2737. You have to call. You can't go online and um, do reservations there. That said, though, you certainly can go online and see the schedule of the readings, which are going through April 28th. So that's good. But this actually is a full production and a terrific full production. Uh, You know right from the beginning, uh, just from walking in, that from the set, uh, which is done by Charlie Corcoran, that it's going to be wonderful. It fits the theater so beautifully because we're in a small apartment and we're certainly in a small theater. And it's not um, a grandiose apartment, I'll tell you. It'll it'll never be confused with the one uh, that we see in the light. I mean, this is a dump and uh, two guys are sharing the same room. One's a poet uh, and spends much of his time writing. And it's almost like true West in the sense that there he is at the typewriter writing while the other guy is bothering him. The other guy really needs to talk. Um, so we're talking about Donald is the poet and, and Seamus is the, uh, the uh, his roommate, um, a peddler, actually, it uh, seems um, he has a lot of feelings about um, the what's going on with the IRA. And um, the thing is that a lot of people in this uh, boarding house really believes that Donald, the poet, uh, is a secret IRA agent. Now, I think most of us today would uh, think that Adolphus Grigson, who comes in, uh, is the one who's the real IRA guy because he comes in and he says, listen, I want to leave this um, a suitcase here. Um, not a suitcase, really. More like the handbag that um, Ernest was born in, the importance of being Ernest, that type of thing. But, I mean, there it is. I just want to leave it here. And it's really a little surprising that nobody's suspicious. But, you know, when you have neighbors, you start thinking about them as neighbors and you don't think of them as uh, anything else than that. So I guess – but this is really like Hitchcock's MacGuffin. You know, that there's <laughs> – Hitchcock loved putting something in there that the audience knew about uh, that um, that the characters didn't. And, uh, and that's what's going on here with Adolphus. Uh, so – uh, Donald has a woman who's tremendously interested in him, Minnie Powell, and uh, very, very, very aptly played here because um, and and wonderfully directed, and um, certainly uh, Karen O'Reilly did the direction, and he knew exactly what to do with this actress, and so did she. So uh, she is just so impressive. Um, Meg Hennessy is her name, in uh, inching ever so closer to him every time. She talks to him because she really wants uh, him to be interested in her and she wants him to know that she is available and uh, her love for him um, turns out to be a very important part in this in this uh, plot. Believe me. Um, So 
there are many colorful characters, and it's really nice that um, here we are with uh, the Irish rep um, saying, okay, it's going to take us at least a cast of 10, but we're going to spend the money on this, and we're going to have a cast of 10 uh, to do it. Uh, that They really have spared no expense here, which was really quite wonderful. Uh, but um, what does happen is that there's a character named Tommy Owens, and he's really into – uh, rebellion and all that. Why? Because he's not fit for service. And so he has to overcompensate. Um, he's not, they won't let him in the army, but, uh, so he's really jingoistic and, you know, I mean, because sure, there's no threat to him. Not really. I mean, he's not going to be on the front lines. He's not going to get killed because they won't take him. So he can really overcompensate by yelling and screaming and carrying on. As it turns out, he'll have a very important role. He'll do his own brand of fighting, and that will be uh, very significant as well. So, terrific, terrific production. Wonderfully acted. Um, I certainly was impressed by James Russell playing Donald. Um, wonderful, wonderful, sensitive man, um, character, uh, wonderfully uh, delivered. Uh, it was also great fun to see um, the women, especially Mrs. Henderson, who's uh, one of the um, – She, I think she runs the boarding house um, – uh, played by Una Clancy, what are those uh, women who, if they, if if she doesn't have her arms akimbo, she has them in front of her chest, uh, crossed over, parked, um, because uh, it uh, she's she's one of those resolute ladies, and she's very very well played. They're all very very good. It's um, it's really quite a, a terrific play to revisit. Uh, right from the outset, you you hear rap 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 on the door. And, you know, it's often said that plays must get into conflict as soon as they possibly can. Well, here it's done without a word because you hear this rapping. You know, somebody really wants to get in there. And what does that mean? Does that mean that this is the law coming in? Uh, will the law ever come in? We'll see. It's also so interesting to see how these people are uh, uh, involved and um, influenced by religion. At one point, uh, they mentioned the Angelus, uh, which is, I believe, of my Roman Catholic education uh, – is still with me, um, is something that happens at noon. Um, so uh, to tell time by the Angelus uh, rather than say it's 12 noon is something that's uh, – there's talk about going to mass. Uh, there's talk about bad things are happening because I didn't go to mass this morning. Let's pray to St. Anthony. I mean these people are really influenced by religion and there are two figurines and a portrait. Um, uh, uh, the religious artifacts are very much displayed in this room and while some people have the misguided notion that it's usually women who put these things up. These two guys are living there, you know I mean? And you might say, well, they probably were there when two women lived in the room before them. Yeah, but they might have taken them down. They don't. But there's a lot of religious imagery in this play. And there is, you know, a lot of talk um, uh, <laughs> about how essentially the Lord will provide. And I guess O'Casey is saying maybe he won't, you know, the, because certainly bad things are going to happen. I'm always amused when somebody gets out of bed, as Seamus does in this show, and um, he he doesn't go to the bathroom. I mean, <laughs> it's so interesting to me that people get out of bed and plays never head right to the bathroom, or at least rarely. And uh, I guess you know this was an era the the play was written a um, hundred years ago, virtually. And uh, I guess the point is the fact that we didn't want to acknowledge that people went to the bathroom. But it's not only that; he certainly doesn't even shower. He's in his long johns when he gets out of bed. And he simply stresses. He puts his pants. He puts his shirt over uh, him. So so uh, that happens as well. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Um, he really seems to be quite the pig. Um, but um, there's a lot of uh, 
finger pointing in this play about uh, what the Irish can and cannot do. There's a lot of talk about um, the inactivity of the Irish and the Irish can't get their act together and that type of thing. A lot of that. And, you know, I have to say, all right, I apologize for this, but I'm going to make an observation. And um, I hope it isn't too crude, as Roxy Hart would say. But the, when I was reviewing in New Jersey, there was a Celtic theater company. And um, it was really something to watch uh, James McGlone take out these plays that were done in America in the 20s and even the 30s and not much beyond that. I mean, occasionally he did Da and he did Dancing at Lunasa, but most of the time he was really going back into the catalog uh, and finding these plays from way back when, um, plays by John Keane, uh, who was a distinguished Irish um, playwright, but I won't be surprised if none of you has ever heard of him because uh, he, he just wasn't uh, as popular here, needless to say, as he was in Ireland. But here's the thing. Every, almost every time, almost every time I went to one of the plays at the Celtic Theatre Company, deep in the play, usually in the third act, because in those 20s and 30s, plays were in three acts. Somebody can come in drunk. Um, and it happens here, too. I mean, it's just so interesting that we we have heard the cliche and the seemingly racist remark that um, the ethnic slur that the um, the Irish drink a lot. But Frankly, you can really see that um, certainly the playwrights of that era either believed it or thought that it was uh, a good way to lighten the atmosphere. Um, I'm hoping it's the latter. But nevertheless, I couldn't help noticing again yesterday when uh, one of the characters comes in, um, certainly, um, to use an old expression, plastered. I love that. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, so uh, I, I, again, I won't be surprised if it was just for comic relief, but it seems to happen in a lot of Irish plays I've seen. Well, that's a very fair point. I've noticed that too, certainly. Have you really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, uh, you know, in My Fair Lady, um, in a little added scene uh, that is sort of uh, based on a scene in the, I, I guess, originally from the Pygmalion movie and also the movie of the musical of My Fair Lady, there's this scene where Eliza, um, where the, the servants come to uh, bring her into the to the bathroom to wash her up. Mm -hmm. And she says at one point, you know, uh, I'm not going to take off all my clothes. And one of them says, well, don't you take off your clothes when you go to bed at night? And she says, why would I do that? Mm -hmm. So so I guess mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. in another era, in certain parts of the world, in certain classes, people slept in their clothes. Yeah, but I still think they had to go to the bathroom when they got up in the morning. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yes. but again, this was this was a suspension of disbelief. You know, yeah. this is because it was just too uh yeah. Uh, unthinkable and gross uh, to think that people actually urinated, you know, yes. or more, you know, so. All right. So, uh, Michael, you got down to Minetta Lane Theater to see Colin Quinn, Red State, Blue State. So tell us about this. Yeah, just briefly, I really wanted to see it because I always enjoy his shows. I think he is hilarious. There's something about his delivery. Um, he's got a very New York uh working class, middle class, uh, suburban type of speech and delivery that I just find hilarious. Uh, it, it doesn't almost matter what he's saying. Uh, he's just like some like really funny, f 
pal that you have from Staten Island or Brooklyn who's uh, you know who's telling you funny stories in a bar. Uh, he he really is great, and he wrote and performed this show as he does all of his shows. Uh, this is a presentation, a co-presentation with, with Audible, uh, which I, I think. Uh, has I don't know if they've completely taken over the Manetta Lane. Uh, yeah, but it does seem that. <laughs> yeah, but they do, uh, the, which is great, you know, because it's a wonderful theater. I'm glad it's still there. I'm glad they they got involved mm-hmm. in it, and mm-hmm. and and it's mm-hmm. a, a win win for everybody. Mm-hmm. So uh, presented by Audible, along with Mike Lavoy, uh, Carly Brilia, Brian Stern, and Keith Boynton, um, directed by Bobby Moresco, and uh, it's. Um, Kind of, you know, it's a free form kind of evening. It's not, um, uh, it's, it, it's, it is political, <laughs> as you might imagine from the title, Red State, Blue State, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not in a, in a very, um, heavy and an in, in incisive way. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's much a more light, uh, evening. And it's one of the most interesting things about it is uh, uh, that I was wondering going into it, how, he would deal with the uh, with the partisan aspect of it. I mean, what you know, what can you assume uh, when you do a show like this in Manhattan? Uh, when you do a show called Red State, Blue State, uh, what can you assume that your audience is going to be? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you can assume most of it will be a blue state audience, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, of course, mean that there won't be any red state people. And and I think you have to obviously think a lot about what you're going to say not to offend uh, those people or, or the other people, you know, and, and kind of walk a fine line. So I so there was um, not that there was very, very little, if anything, in it that I think would have been offensive to anyone. There was one line where he he uh he really gave it to Donald Trump, but literally one sentence. I, I forget um, the, what exactly the line was, but he it, it was not complimentary. Let's put it that way. It was very, very negative. Uh, but other than that, um, uh, very light, funny entertainment. There were a lot of it based on uh, Peter just mentioned that, that that cliche of the Irish drinking. This uh, some of the humor here was based on. Uh, stereotypes and, and cliches of how people in various states and various parts of the country behave and what they hold dear and you know what they uh, what they follow and you know the sports teams and, and whatever things like that. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun and uh, I it was the night I went I, I felt the audience was not as responsive as they could have been, uh, but. Actually, they did warm up uh, as he went along, so that's a testament to him as well. I I really do like him as a performer, and I will always try to see his one-man shows. Okay. Uh, you also headed south to Atlantic City to see Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons at the Hard Rock in Atlantic City. So uh, do you want to give us a brief overview on this? I, I thought it was related to the Jersey Boys in Atlantic City. Is it? Related or no? Just too. Oh coinc- yes, yes. I mean, it, it, well, here's what happened. Um, they had a press conference and a press event to announce um, a a sit down production of Jersey Boys at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, the almost brand new uh, 
facility. Uh, and it's the it's Jersey Boys, and it's going to be there from June 25th through July 21st in a theater, a, a 1,200-seat theater that they have called Sound Waves. Um, so that's why we were there. And, and the presentation itself was really quite something because it took place in an atrium, uh, a huge atrium in this huge casino. And there was a stage set up, but also right next to that was a, a really, really majestic, large escalator. And that is actually where the boys came in. <laughs> uh, they were announced and the four actors playing the Jersey Boys came down the escalator and then ran onto the stage. And uh, they and uh, four girls uh, did t really, I guess I would say like a 20 minute medley of songs from Jersey Boys. And it seemed um, it certainly seemed that to me that they were singing live because it just did. I was standing really close and I, I think they were and they all sounded great. These are not necessarily the people who will be in the show when it opens at the uh, Hard Rock in June because there are so many companies of Jersey Boys, and that's still several months away. And so uh, they're probably working out the contracts right now as to who is going to be in it. But this will be uh, one of the questions I asked. Um, this is, uh, it will be a co-production of the Hard Rock and Nederlander Worldwide Productions, and it will be the full show of Jersey Boys, which is uncommon uh, for presentation in casinos. Uh, for many, many years, they would have tab versions of shows, uh, the theory being that audiences, uh, well, didn't want to spend that much time watching a show and wanted to get back to the, uh, you know, to the <laughs> to, to the casino, to the gambling tables and the slot. I, I think it has more to do with the casinos wanted the people to get back in, <laughs> well, into the, uh, to those machines. Anyway, go on. Yes. No, I, 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 as soon as I said it, I said, well, I guess I should have said yeah. that the other direction. Yeah. But, I, I, but I think it's through of both, uh, true of both anyway. Sure, sure. Depending on the audience. Um, so, uh, so. Uh, well, these guys won't necessarily be in it, but but the ones that we saw were fantastic, and I'm sure they'll they'll have uh, great people. Um, this full version of Jersey Boys, I think, has already been done in Vegas, so um, it it is uh, somewhat unusual in that respect of being a, a full show with an intermission that will be done in a casino. I think um, isn't Phantom in Vegas? Was I that? Think it, I don't think it still is. Oh no no no! But uh, wasn't that another example of where they did the the whole thing, or wasn't it? I think they did. The, I, I saw it. I think they did the whole thing. They they restructured it though. Um, the chandelier came down at the end. I remember, just like the movie, which I think is a a, a, a pretty good idea, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> go on. Because I mean, it's hard to top that. But anyway, go on. Well. Um... So and uh, well, and so the presentation itself was really great because the talent was so good and those songs are so wonderful. And we were all standing there at the atrium and people were cheering and clapping along and it was great. And then at the end of it, the real Frankie Valley came out because he happened to be performing in the arena at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino uh, that very night. Uh, so he came out and, and said a few words. And of course, the crowd went bonkers uh and i'm told that he doesn't 
often uh, participate in promotional events for the show Jersey Boys, I guess maybe for obvious reasons. But he and he is 84 years old. So, uh, mm. you know, uh, but he was there because of that confluence. And it was really kind of an amazing thing to see the actual person, <laughs> you know, come out and talk after uh seeing this these excerpts from this show based on his life and 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 work with the four seasons and then that night uh he performed in the i am told 7000 seat mm. arena at at the casino and hotel uh and and i went and it was packed so uh there is still uh, uh, an audience for frankie valley at 84 um i i mean obviously the name carries a lot of legendary status with it and uh it's it's amazing uh the hard rock is famous i don't know if you guys know a lot about it but all of its locations they have really uh amazing memorabilia uh of of famous uh musicians and groups throughout history, uh, you know, with emphasis on rock. Uh, they have, for example, at this location, they have a handwritten, uh, a sheet of handwritten lyrics for Imagine, written by uh, John Lennon, and they have um, uh, guitars owned by very famous people and costumes, a costume worn by Elvis Presley and a, a Rolls Royce uh, that, that once belonged to Elvis Presley is in the atrium also, and just hundreds of pieces of memorabilia um, so that's that's one reason to go to the Hard Rock in any location, um, and to have a, a, a living piece of history in the, in the form of Frankie Valley there was was kind of amazing. Uh, but also, um, just just briefly, uh, I want to give a little uh, history of of this property. Uh, the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, Atlantic City, was formerly the Trump Taj Mahal. And uh, it was originally known as the Trump Taj Mahal and was inaugurated by its then owner, Donald Trump, in 1990 and was built at a total cost of nearly one billion dollars. Originally, restaurants at the Taj Mahal included the Hard Rock Cafe, Sultan's Feast, Dynasty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Taj Mahal came to the brink of closure in 2014 as its parent company went through bankruptcy, but ultimately remained open under the new ownership of Icon Enterprises. In 2015, the Taj Mahal admitted to having, quote, unquote, willfully violated anti-money laundering regulations for years and was fined $10 million. It was the highest penalty ever levied by the U.S. federal government against a casino. On August 3rd, 2016, it was announced that, that the Trump Taj Mahal would close after Labor Day because of casino workers on strike. It was closed on October 10th, 2016. And on March 1st, 2017, the Seminole Tribe of Florida, through its Hard Rock International brand and the Morris and Gingoli families, announced its purchase of the facility and conversion to the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino brand. It reopened on June 27th, 2018. So it's less than a year old. It uh, uh, so there's all that wonderful, excellent karma there to begin with of, um, you know, taking this hotel away from this criminal and crook who now happens to be president of the United States. Uh, and uh, you almost sound like Tupton when <laughs> she says. <laughs> <laughs> and I, too, am glad for right. death of King. Right. <laughs> This is not a complaint, Michael. It's just an observation. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, I, go on. 
I, I accept that happily. Uh, yeah, so they have, I think, uh, that the karma to begin with is great, and they have done an unbelievable job of changing this place over from what was really a kitschy, you know, really no-class joint, uh, aside from the criminal activity, into a really wonderful place that's that's got a lot of class to it, and uh, and uh, it seems like the people running it now really know what they're doing, and I wish them the best, and I was really glad to participate in this, and I can't wait to go see Jersey Boys there, because I think it'll be a lot of fun in that context, in that wonderful space. All right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time you have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the Shown it to broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, uh, the question was soon after he won a Tony for appearing in a Tony winning musical, he went on to star in a very successful TV series that bore his name. Ten years after he picked up his award, a musical opened that had the first name of the show's male supporting character, the TV show's male supporting character, and the first name of its female supporting character. For that matter, the female supporting character's last name was the maiden name of the leading female character in the musical. Who's the Tony winner, the TV show, and one of the names of the characters? Well, what we're talking about here is Dick Van Dyke, who won the Tony for appearing in the Tony-winning musical Bye Bye Birdie. Okay, then he went to star in The Dick Van Dyke Show, uh, which has its characters Buddy and Sally. And, of course, Buddy and Sally are the characters' names and follies. Ironically enough... Rogers is Sally's last name in the show, and Rogers was Phyllis's maiden name before she became uh, Phyllis Rogers Stone. And in fact, I even checked to make sure, but uh, Rogers in both cases are spelled R-O-G-E-R-S, a la Will, as opposed to R-O-D-G. You know, like one if one had D in it, I wouldn't have um, put the question that way. <laughs> Ed Glazier was the first to get it, followed by Alyssa Ma and Tony Janicki. So they were the only ones to get it. Now, this week's question. What do these Tony-winning songwriters have in common? Lionel Bart, Jerry Bach, Marvin Hamlish, Sheldon Harnick, Jerry Herman, Edward Kleban, and Maury Eston. That's easy. <laughs> I love them all. That's the answer. Good. That's a good answer. Yep. All right. If you have an answer to this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah.
don't cry.